Today on Keep Classical Weird, Dr. Sophia Taggart and I have an episode all about Tchaikovsky. So much emotion and so much memorable music, it's honestly hard to keep straight. In the violin concerto, he actually uses a rhythm from Eugene Onegin. Wait, which one? I've played I've played it's, both, um, I should know. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't remember what it sounds like. <laughs> oh sorry. I'm like, quote it now. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 37 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today is all about Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. He was a Russian composer who lived from 1840 to 1893, and his life was and still is the subject of intense speculation. To this day, historians are working on unraveling the mystery behind Tchaikovsky's personal life. It's likely you recognize his name, but if you don't, it's highly likely that you've heard one of his many works that have weaved their way into our culture, such as The Nutcracker. What's your Tchaikovsky piece? What's your go-to Tchaikovsky piece? <gasps> Eugene Onegin. The opera. No kidding! Really? Yes. Yes. It is my all-time favorite opera. Not just my favorite Tchaikovsky piece. It's my all-time favorite opera. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. It's just so... The music is beautiful. The story is by Pushkin, and it's just so heartfelt. And I just, I love a good story where the guy is like, no, I'm not in love with you. And then later realizes he is. And then the woman's like, peace out. I'm already married. (laughs) Right. You had your chance. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly devastated that he took that long to tell her that he loves her. and, And it's like the end of the opera is just like tears, streams and streams of tears when I'm watching it. But I get a weird satisfaction out of her telling him no. (laughs) That's okay. That's legit. I was going to say like, that's a bold choice for a favorite opera, but that makes a lot of sense. I have to say, for me, I have to, I have to go with violin concerto. It's just. Of course. You know, of course I do. I do. But I mean, it is, you know, what's funny is it's one of those, like, it's one of the big, like, three romantic concertos that we have. And I think it's my favorite one to listen to. Playing it for auditions is rough.
this way too. And maybe this can kind of tie into their conversation. I feel like if you ask almost any, uh, like, I'm going to say maybe even as early as junior high, but like any high school music student that's like in their youth symphony and they're thinking about having a career in music that they're really entrenched. If you ask them their favorite composer, Tchaikovsky's going to come up for many of them. And I know that was true for me. Like Tchaikovsky was like a go-to composer when I was young. He's still a go-to composer, but I feel as though my tastes have, have kind of rolled over into something a little less like like he's so emotion all the time like there's no mm-hmm. downtime with Tchaikovsky ever ever even his slow stuff is like oh it's filled with such so I think an angst-filled teenage Casey really got a lot of satisfaction oh yeah it's all the hormones right the the music appeals to you the angst of the of your teen years and the hormone overload and yeah, I totally. I, I agree with you. Definitely. Uh, those romantic composers in general, uh, when you're coming up in your career, you're like, oh, I just feel his music, you know? And then um, and then you get a little farther along and I feel like you get a little bit more excited about some academic stuff. You know, you're like, ooh, that's really cool. They, right. they did that that texture shift and like you get really academic about things and and it doesn't mean that you lose the emotional whatever. Um, but I think by then you're, you're also a bit tired of all the emotions of up and down with life and music careers. And so you're like, man, just give me something mathematical and academic. Yeah. <laughs> Enough with the drama. <laughs> yeah. I've got enough drama. inner self must have been dramatic from like from beginning to end there's really nothing of his that I can think of that's like oh this is nice like (laughs) you know it's all so involved yeah I've I've often wondered about that when when I've done reading about his family and him and and um it from what I can tell in all of the readings I've done it seems like he was always very sensitive, you know, um, in his life. And he was really uh, sensitive to words and and um, language. And so, like, his family called him, like, the little pushkin, you know, because he was so, so uh, emotive with words and really just read a ton and could speak la- multiple languages. And so I think, I think that that inner sensitivity just came out in everything that he did, even when he was at the beginning of his composition career, because he might not have had the technical facility that, you know, he did when he was older, but that emotional element, he didn't really 
pursue music to begin with. He was involved with music, but he ended up working with the government or in civil, as a civil servant. And, and he, his original study of music came from an aunt and studying opera outside of school. So it wasn't, it was more of a passion than his focus for a while. And then he ended up going to school, like for music. He went to the St. Petersburg Conservatory and um, it was just nonstop from there. I mean, he just kind of took off. Like even nowadays, I mean, people, people start in at least elementary school, middle school, you know, and then they go. But if, if you could just imagine like not really pursuing music or studying it until you were already 20 or older, that's, that's a really big um, lifestyle change. I mean, career change, everything. Much of my career, I have kind of like jokingly referred to Tchaikovsky as a confirmed bachelor, but he super wasn't because he got married, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's dive into the you know the relationships and the the um, the view of of sexuality, like right. at that time in that place. Okay, so there's, first of all, there are so many rumors floating around about Tchaikovsky. Some of them you can nail, you can almost nail down and you're like, okay, yes, he was most likely homosexual. The only people who dispute it are Russia at the moment. I mean, that's And like, like current Russia that... Yeah, yeah, they're like, he's not gay. And it's like, oh, he was gay. He was gay. And there's nothing wrong with that, Russia. Because they obviously want to claim him as like their their homeland mm-hmm. composer, but they're having a conflict yeah. with because their governmental views on homosexuality. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So they, they they are definite uh deniers. Um, but I think most everyone else has settled on the fact, the fact that he was indeed uh gay. And so um, that is, that's, you know, one like rumor that was floating around for a while and finally got mostly confirmed. Okay. So there's that. But yes, he did get married. And that marriage has a ton of rumors floating around that, which is, I, I just love this. I mean, if, if Tchaikovsky were alive today, I mean, he would be in the gossip columns all the time and he would be so upset about it. And I feel bad for him, but like, 
Yeah, I think the fact that he was constantly trying to keep quiet about his life in general made him so enticing to us now. So, um, so he married this woman, Antonina, who this is the rumor and it's most likely false. <laughs> he supposedly sent him a letter and said, I can't live without you. You have to marry me or else I will kill myself. And so according to the rumor, he married her two weeks later in order to keep her from killing him, killing herself. Uh, and then shortly after realized what he did. And then they separated like two months later. Okay. So that's the rumor that was started by his brother Modest. <laughs> but according to some letters that have been found or some research that was done in the early 90s or something, it is more likely that he actually knew her beforehand and was writing to her for a little while. And then, yes, they got married. And then he had a bit of a, an, oh God, what did I do moment? And then they did separate. <laughs> so like the outcome of the marriage, that was all true, but how he got married is the rumor. It's like, there's conflicting stories. But what I find fascinating about that whole story is that while he was writing letters back and forth with Antonina, he was writing the fourth symphony and Eugene Onegin. And so Eugene Onegin is about this woman who is in love with this man who doesn't love her back. Fascinating, like how that might have, you know, resonated with him while he was in the process of deciding to marry this poor woman. That's very telling. Oh, and then um, there's something, something about the fourth movement of Tchaikovsky's symphony uh, number four that it has like a melody that is a children's song that's about a birch tree that like the leaves and the twigs can get made into these like crown type things. And if you float them or a wreath, a wreath. And if you, and there's like this tradition where women will take the wreath to the, to a river. And if it floats, they're going to get married. And if it sinks, they don't. Okay. Wait. So the, what? Okay. Wait a minute. Just, I followed you that. The, the the theme and the fourth movement of the fourth symphony tells is this yeah. childhood um tale. Yeah. It's the it's like a melody from a children's song which is about this this concept of that thing. the floating okay. wreaths, wreaths. Yeah. That's wow. Okay. I know. Russia. And he's he's writing that and Eugene Onegin at the same time that this whole marriage thing is going on. It's just fascinating to see how that interlocks. interesting to see the way Tchaikovsky really was worried about people thinking he was gay, which some historians have 
kind of latched onto that. And he was becoming very vocal about, you know, marriage being really important right around the time when maybe people were starting to wonder. And then that's when he got married. So like, he was very concerned about making sure that other people didn't know what he was like, you know, in the public eye, I guess, is, is the main thing. So I think it's maybe one of those situations as well, where, you know, if you have a small group of friends, they're accepting and, and, you know, you can kind of let them into what's going on with you, but you don't want the public knowing, you know, it's just because you, he was worried about kickback if people found out and, and what have you. And so he was constantly worried about gossip. Okay. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly worried about gossip. Um, so that, I think is why he's so interesting to us because when we look back, we've, we've been able to say, no, he was, he was homosexual, but now like looking back as well, we can see that he was really trying hard so that people wouldn't see that. So you had said, you know, all the rumors, but the one, the one about him being gay is all but confirmed so what, let's talk about the evidence there. There are, there are letters, yeah? There, yeah, there's some um, letters that, like, he wrote, I think, to his brother or uh, to friends that his brother got a hold of. But I think, you know, it's also important to know that while most historians are like, yes, he was gay, a lot of the actual evidence came from Modeste's biography on his brother and it has since been proven to be not a reliable source like for a recount of certain things but at the same time some of the stuff he says isn't not right (laughs) so (laughs) you know it's it's just one of those things like you can look at that that biography that his brother wrote and read it. And then if you take it at face value, you're going to believe all of this stuff. But underneath, there might be like a few kernels of truth. But a lot of it's just kind of exaggerated and told from a, like a novelist's perspective or something. So as far as I know, I don't know of any letters of him actually writing to a lover. I don't know of any of that, that obvious. Um, I guess all of the evidence is somewhat circumstantial, but it's points to the same answer, I guess. It seems like that there's the, there's no reason for pushback on a historical factual standpoint. Right. You know, like the only pushback, like if, if historians are like, well, yeah, he was probably gay. The only reason to argue against that is because of some moral problem that that one might have. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I think it's it's pretty clear that he was and but, you know, then there are those music historians who then because it came out that he was probably gay, started looking for evidence of it in his actual music. And so that was really popular in like the nineties. People were always 
searching through people's music, looking for indicators that they're a woman or a man or, or that they're gay or straight or something. And so I think that became a popular, another popular thing to do with regarding Tchaikovsky, but there's no evidence. It's just, you know, someone analyzing and saying, oh, this, this is, you know, when he was maybe doing this or that or, or whatever. And he, he never wrote, Hey, this piece is about my sexual identity, you know, <laughs> never. <laughs> so tell me about this, you know, and I, this is kind of a recent discovery, I feel like, and the, in the general span of things about, about what led to his death. Yeah. Okay. So there's, again, there's a lot of speculation about how he really died. I want to speculate like crazy. So let's, okay. let's do all let's the speculation. Yeah. Okay. So the official death record says cholera. However, there have been rumors or document, you know, maybe some papers were unearthed or letters or something, but a while back, someone claimed that Tchaikovsky actually died from drinking arsenic on purpose. And he did this because his sexuality was going to become public knowledge and he was going to be ruined as a composer and things, bad things were going to be happen or going to happen because of this uh, revelation that was coming out. Some secret society told him, you know, you can either kill yourself or, you know, this is what's going to happen. And so this, yeah, the story is that he drank arsenic on purpose in order to save his, I guess, reputation. And like, again, yeah. we don't know if this is true, but like, I mean, what? And I guess one of the arguments was um, there were rumors about that. And then uh, they started comparing, you know, the symptoms of cholera with the symptoms of arsenic and not knowing where he would have caught cholera again or, or, you know, going through all this stuff, the symptoms are similar. So that's kind of how they, they made that, that leap. If you're trying to save your reputation in that way, that would make 
a lot of sense, and this is me again speculating on his music, that his music is so intense and physically and emotionally demanding, both. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I've I've played the Nutcracker every year and I'm still freaking wiped out at the end every time. Or it's something even more monumentous like that, like Swan Lake. Holy cats, that's hard. And so demanding for, uh, or Sleeping Beauty, which we talked about on another podcast on the ballet. It's so good. Not only is that demanding for for the musicians, like the dancers are talking about how it's the most challenging thing they dance to because of the amount of stuff that they have to do um, to respond to this music. So it's, it seems to draw out such, such emotions from anyone, but they're not hard emotions to access. You know what I mean? They're like really basic, like love, need, desire. It's those emotions on the surface. It's not, you know, it's not any like philosophical, you don't have to go very deep to figure out like the kind of like pain that Tchaikovsky must have been in when writing some of this stuff. And that's our show for today. Many thanks, as always, to Dr. Sophia Taggart at Washington State University. Our theme music is written by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check out his stuff at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird. Stay weird.